0: Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner and a personal finance author. This is a show to help you understand your money, and we've got some great topics and some fun topics today. We're going to look at the Super Bowl and the stock market and see if there's a correlation between who wins and when the market goes up. We're going to talk about how to communicate with your financial advisor to stay inside of regulations. We're going to talk about how to prepare for the tax season. And then finally, I'm going to show you how you can include your rent in your credit score, which might help you increase your credit score. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears market and economic update. This is for the week ending February 9th, 2024, and it was another good week in the market. The Dow was up just a little at 0.04%, but the S&P 500 was up 1.37%, while the NASDAQ was up 2.31%. Gold was up about nine-tenths of a percent, And oil, West Texas Intermediate Crude front month price, was up about 5.8%, and the current price of a barrel is $76.60. The 10-year Treasury yield raised almost 14.5%, and it's currently at 4.168%. The dollar went up 0.15%, while Bitcoin rose 11.38%. And I am taping this on a Monday morning after a pretty late night last night watching the Super Bowl and its overtime. One of the longest games in record. And for those of you who are rooting for the Chiefs, congratulations. For those of you rooting for the 49ers, they played a really great game as well. It was a good Super Bowl. It was a good halftime overall. A good time was had by all. Now, interestingly there are some people who follow the market who find a correlation between who wins the Super Bowl and what the market's going to do. But like with anything that's prognosticating the future of the market, you need to take it with a huge grain of salt and you need to know what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. So the rumor is that the Super Bowl indicator says that if the San Francisco 49ers won, the market would be higher. And if the Kansas City Chiefs won, the market would be lower in 2024. And so that's based off of the U.S. market rises for years as long as the games winning team was never part of the original American Football League, now called the American Football Conference, or was in the NFL prior to the AFL's 1966 merger. So you got that? So you it has to be a team that wasn't part of the American Football League or was in the NFL prior to the American Football League's merger. It was created as a joke by Leonard Coppett, That's K-O-P-P-E-T-T, who is a sports writer and a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame, which should immediately start making you suspicious. He created the indicator as a joke at a party, and he was absolutely horrified when it got picked up by the market as being a real thing. And in fact it does not appear when you look at old data to have any correlation of truth behind it. So there is absolutely zero correlation between who wins the Super Bowl and what the stock market does. And shortly before his death, He said he hoped that this indicator would die with him. Well, it hasn't. In fact, the article was on the front page of a major stock market website. Now, that same article gave this history. I'm going to include the link to that in case you want to look at it, especially since this is kind of fun, quirky information that I didn't know before I read the article. It comes out of MarketWatch. But it still followed by a group of incredibly superstitious people known as stock traders stock traders are as superstitious as any sports member or any fan that you've ever seen so if you hear horrible news about the fact that kansas city won so the market's going to go down no truth to it we don't know what the market's going to do Coppa didn't know what the record was going to do, and he actually hoped this would go away. But I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon, because why would you get rid of such a surefire way of getting people's attention? Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And apparently last week was a little slow in financial regulation news, but I did find an article that I thought was important for you to understand because sometimes the behavior of financial professionals can be frustrating and you don't know why they're handling things the way they are. This article was talking about ways that financial professionals are required by law to communicate with you, and more specifically, methods they're not allowed to use to communicate with you. Now, in this particular article, everything involved was investment advisors. And I think that's because broker-dealers are more likely to have things in place that prevent the possibility of communicating in unauthorized ways. The short version of this is the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, wants to know what advice financial advisors are giving to their clients. And they want to have a way to be able to look at the communication structure anytime it's in writing. That's why when you send a text to your financial advisor, you probably get a phone call back because people in the financial world are not allowed to give investment advice via text message. They're also not allowed to use WhatsApp or other kinds of communication that cannot be saved. Now, some of us pay for a service where all of our electronic communication is saved. I don't do business ever on text message or WhatsApp or any of the messaging services because they're a lot harder to track. My social media is all recorded in case anyone ever wanted to know what was being said. If you've ever gotten a phone message from your advisor or broker saying, you can't leave a trade order on my phone, that's kind of related to this. It's making sure that the information is actually passed in a timely way from the advisor to the recipient. And it's also passed in a way, unless they call you on the phone, that that advice can be tracked. So if you are talking to your financial advisor or if you send them a text message or a WhatsApp message, they're not likely going to respond in kind, especially especially if it's about a security sale or a question about a security. Because really most of this legislation focuses around giving investment advice or more specifically telling someone what they ought to be buying or what they ought to be selling or taking an order from a client who wants the advisor to buy or sell something. Now, they're going to have to do some kind of upgrade to the entire system because very rapidly, this is how everybody is doing business. Okay, everybody texts. All my clients have my cell phone because during COVID... I wasn't in the office, right? And so my cell phone number was right on the office message. So now that they have their cell, my cell phone, they're more likely to text me than they are to call me. So what I do is if they send me a text message and it's anything other than, hi, how are you doing? I respond back in a legally approved way. And your financial professional is probably doing exactly the same thing. It can get a little irritating when you send a message and then they want to set up something more formal, but just be aware that they're doing this because they're required by law to do it. So, unless it's a verbal communication, like a phone call, there's only certain ways in writing a financial professional is allowed to interact with their clients. Do I think that the rules will change in the future? Probably But 16 major firms just paid an $81 million fine, so it's not going to be changing anytime soon. And it's really important for you to communicate with your advisor in the way that works for them and understand that they, by law, have to communicate back with you in certain ways. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And with February, you should have begun to receive tax documents that you'll use when you're filing your 2023 return. For this week's segment, I thought I'd talk about some of the things you can do to make it easier to successfully file your taxes, and I also thought I'd give you some tips and tricks for ways to avoid making mistakes. So, what I do when I receive paper tax documents is I put them in one place. You know, the old joke about your tax records is that they're in a shoebox. Well, I don't care if you put them in a shoebox. I put them in a plastic file on top of my desk. And that way, whenever anything comes in, I throw it into that box. And I know then when I start to prepare my taxes where everything's supposed to be. And it helps me avoid the mad scramble of, wow, I can't find this. The other thing that will help you make sure you have everything is to get out your copy of last year's return. For most of us, our year-over-year returns are very similar. So if we got interest from a bank account last year or a dividend from an insurance policy, we probably got the same thing this year. So one way you can be sure you haven't forgotten something on your tax return is to make sure that you have documents from this year's return that match up with last year's return. If you're missing something, you want to find this earlier than when your taxes are due. Now, remember, if you have a real crisis, April 15th is your first tax deadline, but it's not your last chance. You can also file your your return as late as the extension period, which is six months later, which is October 15th. So if you put everything together and you realize you can't find an interest form from ABC Bank, then you've got enough time. You can contact them, get a new form, and then file your return. If you receive everything electronically, then create a folder on your desktop, on your laptop, or somewhere in your computer system so there is a single virtual file folder that you've put everything in. It's just like paper, but it's electronic. Lots of people aren't doing paper anymore. And so you want to make sure that you keep it organized and that things don't get lost in your inbox. Also be aware that when you sign up for things virtually, they don't always send you an email notification and they don't always send your tax documents as an email you may have to log into wherever you have your account and then you should be able to go through a menu of options and eventually find the tax document section and then start looking at everything for 2023 I'm always horrified, especially with brokerage accounts so investment accounts, how many times they revise their 1099s or how many times they revise the 1099R if you've taken retirement distribution out of it. So I am not necessarily a fan of being first kid on the block to get my tax return in. And just because you've received a document, let's say you go in February 1st, you find the document, you put it in your electronic file, you might want to go in right before you do your taxes to make sure they haven't done a revision. I think it's kind of a dirty trick not to notify you that they've done a revision to the 1099, but I promise you they don't always tell you. So make sure when you're actually sitting down to do the return that you've got the latest, most up-to-date document because that's the one the IRS has. And if you want to draw an audit, use information that doesn't match what the IRS has received from the custodian. So always check that. Now, many, many people file extensions. I have been known to file a few extensions in my day and for business owners trying to get everything organized at the end of the year with business tax returns, remember they're due earlier, they're, they're due March 15th. So lots of business owners actually stall as long as they can to do their business taxes for retirement funding. Okay, That's usually why there's that huge delay. So. That pushes you forward, which pushes your personal return to October 15th. But there's a catch. If you owe taxes, you will not only have to pay that money late, but you will also have to pay a penalty if you didn't pay the money by April 15th. All of your tax liability is due by April 15th, whether you file an extension or not. So if you're sitting right now and you don't really have any idea whether you owe taxes or not, I would strongly encourage you to go in and rough out some data and see whether or not the amount of tax that you had withheld last year that you have actually um, paid enough tax in. It makes it a lot easier if you don't owe not only taxes, but a penalty on top of it. If you pay the tax liability, you put that check or electronic um, transfer, but often in these situations, they still require paper checks when you file your extension. So you file the extension before April 15th and you include your funding check with that extension. Now, you're probably asking, but if I knew how much tax I owed, I wouldn't need to file an extension in the first place. And that's kind of right. Okay, the other way you can try to get a sense as to whether or not you owe taxes is what happened to your taxes last year and how much has changed year over year with what's going on in your finances. If you are just an employee and you don't have a lot of complications in your return, so let's assume you have one job and it's the same job you had last year and you didn't owe taxes last year, in fact, you overpaid a little bit, you got a bit of a refund, you're probably fine this year unless something else went off in your finances. The people this tends to impact the most are people who have small businesses and the profit or loss of that business flows through onto their individual return via a Schedule C if you're a small business or a K-1 if you're a small corporation. And if that profit loss number really changes year over year, it would pay you to Go ahead and file your March 15th extension if you can't make it. This is just February 12th. You've got two months, and that would let you know prior to filing your individual taxes on April 15th, whether or not you were okay, whether or not you owe the IRS. If you're getting a refund, you do not have a problem. Everything goes just fine. If you do have a small business and your small business files on a Schedule C as a sole proprietorship on your individual tax return, then you have to file everything all at the same time. So your Schedule C is just part of your tax return and that deadline is April 15th just because you have a small business you don't have a march 15th deadline you only have a march 15th deadline if you file a specific business return and lots and lots of small businesses don't have that so the key takeaways here are: organize your stuff don't lose it make sure that you've paid enough taxes in if you are very, very close to being able to itemize deductions. When you do your taxes this year, now this won't save you for 2023 because the only thing you could do potentially is fund an IRA. That might help a little, but it doesn't have anything to do with itemized versus standard deductions. If when you do your taxes, if you're close, you might be able to double up your deductions every other year, and take the standard deduction one year, take the itemized deduction the next year, and up your tax savings just a little bit. We'll talk more about that later, but something to just look at this year is, how close were you to being able to itemize? That's gonna let you know if you have strategies in the future. It sounds like a lot, but it isn't. If you start today, you're not going to be stressed out on April 15th. Just go ahead if you need it, File the extension, but make sure you paid enough taxes before you do it. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And we always talk about the importance of having good credit. But the problem is if you don't have credit, how do you establish it? One of the pieces of advice that I give to people trying to establish credit card credit is to get a gas card. If you get a gasoline credit card, if you're eligible for it, the advantage is you can't overspend that easily. You're going to be buying gasoline either way. So you buy the gas on the gas card, and then every month when the bill comes in, you've set aside the money every time you filled your tank, and then you pay the bill off in its entirety. What you don't want to do is get a credit card at a store you like to shop at. I know that sometimes they're pretty easy cards to get, but it's the best way in the world to start racking up credit card debt because you like this store, right? And you want to buy things at it and they give you access to what looks like free money. But the terms of those cards are often really steep so that the interest that you pay is high and you end up sometimes setting some very bad habits. If you get a gas card, there's really only so many soft drinks and beef jerkies that you can buy over the course of a month, and you're much less likely to overspend on it. But what happens if you don't qualify to get a credit card at all because you either have bad credit or no credit? Well, one thing that it's possible to do now is add some additional credit items to your credit score, so that if you are paying rent, your rent can be included on your credit report. Now, there's a number of different ways of doing this. You can ask your landlord to report it, and there's reporting software that you can use. There are all kinds of credit reporting software, and you know on this show I am never telling you what you ought to be doing, right? I want you to do your own due diligence and I want you to choose what works. What I will tell you, however, is I have seen Experian Boost used very well. So that you, Experian is one of the three credit rating agencies. So it's a good place to get directly from what you're doing into your credit score. And you can add things like rent and utility bills, and other kinds of things that you're making regular payments on. They say that it can't lower your score, that it can only help you. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I know that they claim that if you add your own items, that it can only boost your score. So if you're trying to get your credit score up, or maybe you just don't have much of a score at all because you don't have a lot of history, you can add your rent, you can add your utilities. Um, all of those things are going to help you establish credit. Then when you need credit, it's easier to get it. Sometimes if you need credit, you can go to a bank and get something called a credit builder loan loan. A credit builder loan is more likely to be available at a credit union or a community bank, although I'm sure major banks offer something like this as well. And what happens is the loan payments are reported to the bureaus, but you can only access the funds after you've paid the loan off. So it's a way basically of having you pay into an account. It shows your ability to make monthly payments. And then when that amount is paid off, you get the money back out of the bank. So it's almost like an invisible loan. You're not actually buying anything with it. You're proving to the bank that you can make payments. And although that sounds frustrating and maybe not like a lot of fun when you're first getting started, trust me, having good credit is going to make your life a lot easier in the future. You want to be able to prove to people that you can pay your bills. That way, when you want to buy something like a house, it's easier to do. So I have some fun appearance news to share with you guys. I'm going to be at the Sepulpa Library on February 17th. I'm going to be talking about basic financial skills, how to to save an emergency fund, how to fund your retirement, just basic financial literacy stuff. And that is Sepulpa Library, February 17th from 11 until 1. I will be at the Enid Author Festival April 20th and I will have my books available at both events and the good news is we finally have the revision to my first book finished. So if you have a 2018 edition and you want to update it. The new books that are available, it's called a revised edition. It's not actually a second edition. It still shows the 2018 date, but all the numbers have been updated to 2024 numbers. Any tax information that's changed has been fixed in the book. Those books will be for sale in Sepulpa as well as Enid, but you don't have to buy. You can come and just say hi, and on the 17th of February, I'm going to be speaking. You don't want to miss that. Also, I have some exciting news. I'll be able to share some of it now and some of it later because I don't know the second half of it myself yet, but I've gotten my cover back on my very first mystery ever called You Can't Cheat Death, where the heroine is a financial planner. The cover is gorgeous. I'm going to do the cover reveal at Sepulpa on the 17th, and then I'll do a social media reveal after that. I'm waiting for copies coming back from the proofreader. When I reviews those, I'll have a release date. I don't have a release date yet, but we are getting really, really close. It'll be sometime late this summer, and I will certainly keep you guys in the loop about all of that. I can't wait. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at Peggydoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.